I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we help you navigate complex technologies and their impacts on society through analysis and critique. This is episode 33. So in our last episode, we got halfway through the book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America by Margaret O'Mara. Where we left off, the idea of having a computer in your own home started taking off with the Homebrew Computer Club, the Altair Computer Kit, and the Apple One Computer. Apple, in particular, caught everyone's attention. Everyone, that is, in the engineering-oriented Silicon Valley. But could those so-called home computers catch on to a broader audience? Steve Jobs, in particular, thought so, and took out an ad in the Wall Street Journal on August the 13th, 1980, to make his case. In part, a bearded Steve Jobs said, When we invented the personal computer, we invented a new kind of bicycle. We kind of already know the answer, but in this episode, let's wrap up our look at the history of Silicon Valley and see what happened when Steve Jobs tried to introduce himself and the personal computer to the public and what else happened in the Valley. Okay, let's dive in. In short, to say that Wall Street and the public reacted positively to Apple and to the personal computer would be an understatement. By 1980, Apple's revenue had grown to double what the entire microcomputer industry had been just three years prior. In fact, Apple was considering taking their company public with an IPO. Computer chips were rapidly becoming cheaper and more powerful, and capital gains tax cuts caused a flood of venture capital money to flow into the valley, leading some to refer to venture capitalists as vulture capitalists. But what I found interesting about this part of Silicon Valley's history was that the narrative of this scrappy company, Apple, starting their company in a suburban garage, completely ignored the role of the government in making Silicon Valley possible in the first place. The supercomputers, the forefathers of the personal computer, resulted from government funding during the war. And as we saw in the last episode, defense funding launched Hewlett-Packard and other Valley companies. And the government funding also caused the growth of the microchip and the growth of Stanford University. Today, we know the legend of Silicon Valley is starting from a garage, this free market American dream. But Lockheed was still, at that time, the Valley's largest employer, and government investment allowed these new innovations to happen. But Apple did go public, and in October 1981, Steve Jobs appeared on the cover of Inc. magazine. Under the headline, this man has changed business forever. And with this, the history of Silicon Valley became legend. But here I want to note that in many ways, a complementary success story to Steve Jobs and Apple Computer is that of Bill Gates and Microsoft. Though Microsoft headquarters was in Seattle, Washington, Microsoft was in a sense symbiotically linked with Silicon Valley. IBM, the battleship, was the early main competitor to Apple, the pirates, and the IBM PC came to dominate the market. The real key to IBM's success was the combination of Microsoft software and Intel CPUs. 
Instead of just the IBM PC, other personal computer makers also came onto the scene, also using Intel chips and Microsoft software. These PC clones, often much cheaper than IBM PCs, caught on in the market, causing difficulties not only for IBM, but also for Apple. In fact, in 1983, Apple had to lay off employees, and Steve Jobs even brought in someone from outside the computer industry, John Scully, president of soft drink maker Pepsi, to serve as Apple CEO. Apple's response to the growing PC threat is still talked about to this day. During the Super Bowl on January 22, 1984, Apple shook the world with an ad featuring a woman running with a hammer through a Ridley Scott and George Orwell dystopian corporate building amid mindless drone workers. She's being chased by guards, and she stops and swings and hurls her hammer through the air towards a screen that was featuring a talking managerial overlord. When the screen explodes, shattering the reality of the drone workers, the following words appeared on the screen. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce the Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. A picture of the Mac was never shown, only the rainbow Apple logo. In politics, Ronald Reagan and a group of Democrats that became known as the Atari Democrats, including a representative from Tennessee named Al Gore, both saw Silicon Valley as representing America's future. And the public did too. In the book, Omero reports that while Americans bought just 724,000 personal computers in 1980, by 1982, that number jumped to 2.8 million. Now, to keep up with this demand, Silicon Valley companies kicked into overdrive. And here we see the cementing of what became the Silicon Valley culture. Says Omera, 80-hour weeks were the norm. Utter immersion in work was a badge of honor. When your industry's poster boys were Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, it seemed normal that success should entail surrender of a personal life regular bathing, and even purchasing proper living room furniture. Workaholism had become endemic to late 20th century American capitalism. In the personal computer business, however, it gained additional punch because it rested on a total immersion hacker culture that was about putting all else to one side to build a motherboard or write the perfect string of code. Having friends, as one Apple engineer put it, is orthogonal to designing computers. And I'll point out that all these employees were mostly white males, a demographic profile that Silicon Valley struggles with to this day. Another interesting factor that shaped Silicon Valley during this time period was the growth of the electronics industries in Japan. In 1979, Japan launched the Sony Walkman, which became incredibly popular. Japan's own growing semiconductor industry allowed them to crank out volumes of cheap chips that caused American semiconductor firms major concerns. But American legislators were confused by this new technology and didn't know how best to set technology and economic policy. California led the way in shifting everyone's understanding. California's governor at the time was Jerry Brown, and they realized that they needed to increase investments in semiconductors, computers, biotechnology, and other high-tech fields if America was to remain competitive. 
though exactly how to do this was not clear. And I'll just note that this concern about competitive abilities of the U.S. regarding semiconductors, as discussed in the book, echoes current concerns in the U.S., as exemplified by the recently announced CHIPS for America initiative, where CHIPS stands for Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors. And I know researchers at my own university, Virginia Tech, are looking to participate in this initiative. But back to the book, another realization due to a technological Japan was that America needed to improve how students were educated. And so a big push was made to introduce computers into the K-12 curriculum. Steve Jobs himself personally lobbied in Congress to pass a bill that would have those computers be Apple computers via federal tax breaks. But he was unsuccessful. However, computer literacy as a key to creativity and career success and to keep up with Japanese peers became entrenched in curriculum design. At least that was the thought. Computer technologies in the classroom tended to magnify equality gaps between affluent and minority school districts and more time seemed to be spent on fixing the technology than using it for creative pursuits. As someone put it at the time, To err is human, but to really foul things up requires a computer. Defense spending once again came to Silicon Valley's rescue. 1982 saw DARPA's Strategic Computing Initiative and its $650 million budget funded research programs into supercomputing, microelectronics, and artificial intelligence. And that was just the beginning. Between the 1980s and mid-1990s, Federal funding for computer science research more than tripled to close to $1 billion per year flowing into academic laboratories. But that research was increasingly focused towards military ends. For example, U.S. President Ronald Reagan announced the goal of creating a missile shield against incoming nuclear weapons with SDI, or the Strategic Defense Initiative. But unfortunately, there's also the saying that live by the sword, die by the sword. And with the increasing ramp-up of defense spending came corresponding fears of nuclear annihilation, captured in the 1983 movie War Games. By the late 1980s and 1990s, Steve Jobs had both been fired from Apple and started a new computer company called Next. And Microsoft continued to grow. But beyond the importance of the personal computer, the world was also realizing the importance of the network, as consumers tentatively went online via timesharing companies such as CompuServe and Prodigy. Personally, I remember first going online in high school in the early 1980s with my Atari computer. Now, the online experience at that time was very clunky, but it was clear that being able to connect with others remotely via computer was the future. A British scientist at the European Organization for Nuclear Research, or CERN, named Tim Berners-Lee, worked on creating a new language called HTML and a new communication protocol called HTTP to help make sharing information and navigating online easier. And with this, the web was born. But Berners-Lee's transformation of the internet into the World Wide Web not only made surfing easier, but also created an entire new economy. In 1992, Apple CEO John Scully said, 
The biggest change in this decade is going to be the reorganization of work itself. In this new economy, the strategic resources are no longer just the ones that come out of the ground, like oil and wheat and coal, but they are ideas and information that come out of our mind. Now, today we know this new economy as the knowledge economy, but it was neat seeing its birth in the book. While I suspect many people listening to this podcast are familiar with the web and the knowledge economy, and thus continuing to work our way through the rest of the book might not be as interesting, at this point in our timeline, there's a lot more in the book, though, that traces the history of Silicon Valley. So I encourage you to uh, get the book and, and dive in, but I'll, I just want to, for now, hit the highlights and point out a few things that I thought were particularly interesting. As we heard in the previous podcast episode, it was interesting that the role of venture capitalists continued to help provide the resources, money, and managerial experience needed by Silicon Valley startups, often founded by quirky engineers with a breakthrough idea or prototype. In fact, because of tax breaks, in many ways, making money as a venture capitalist was easier and more lucrative than actually doing the work of creating the companies they funded. Silicon Valley also discovered the need to be political. They took showers, put on suits, flew to Washington, D.C., and tried to charm both political parties. We saw an initial attempt earlier in this episode with Steve Jobs trying to get federal tax breaks for Apple computers to be used in schools. But when technically unsavvy legislators tried passing laws, such as the Communications Decency Act, that evoking the hysteria around Satan worshippers and Dungeons and Dragons, proposed to save people going online from being perverted by porn, smut, naughty things, and other such content imagined by sheltered politicians who'd never actually been online themselves, or with the Clipper Chip, which proposed helping secure online traffic, but which also allowed federal, state, and local government authorities the ability to decrypt and see anyone's traffic. When this type of legislation started coming out of Washington, D.C., Silicon Valley companies established outposts there in D.C. and learned to lobby as well as they could code. Also, another part of the book I found interesting was how the rise of Amazon, Google, and Facebook during the 2000s transformed the early culture of the Internet, which was based on the free flow of information on a non-commercial network. It was, this was transformed into a culture based on making money off of their users' data and attention, especially with advertisements. An early motto of Google was, don't be evil. Though, as time went on, Silicon Valley's sentiment more echoed Facebook's motto of, move fast and break things, which, along with tech bro demographics, led to the creation of products more interested in surveilling you while nominally providing value to you. While Omera does not go into much detail about the implications of this cultural turn, other authors have, such as Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Another item I found interesting is that of all the Silicon Valley companies that were detailed in the book, many were created by immigrants. Omera says, Open doors to the world allowed Silicon Valley to draw from a global talent pool even as politicians have begun to hotly debate the nation's immigration policy. 
Over half the companies founded in the Valley between 1995 and 2005 had a foreign-born founder. About 40% of the engineering degrees at Stanford were earned by international students. Drawing in this talent helped keep U.S. universities the best in the world. And I make this point because even today, some politicians try to get their constituents scared about evil, nasty immigrants, and many forums and journalists fret about so-called open borders. All that hysteria is, of course, nonsense. But maybe a broader reading of Omera's book could help more people understand how great the U.S. can become if we instead embrace those who want to come to this country for a better education and to create a new life for themselves. This line by Omera highlights one of America's strengths. Valley culture was American culture, allowing free flows of people, capital, and information like no other country in the world. The detailed Valley history in the book drops off around 2010, with Silicon Valley well-established and the early startups of Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, and Facebook now essentially monopolies. Where to go from here? Well, I think we're now left with writing a new history, one perhaps detailing the issues created by Silicon Valley's defense contracts, semiconductors, personal computers, networks, and online corporations. I mentioned Shoshana Zuboff's look at surveillance culture, but there are also lots of other unintended consequences in what Silicon Valley has created, such as social media disinformation, bias, privacy, interpretability, and fairness problems with artificial intelligence, a growing cultural fragmentation, and engineering cultures that sees technology as the solution to all problems. So I hope you stick around and continue supporting the Techno Slipstream podcast as we continue looking at what technology has wrought and what our techno future can look like. So until next time, that's a wrap for part two of our deep dive into the code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America by Margaret O'Mara. You can see our next deep dive books over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Kendall Giles. And you can also find their other writings and discussions, podcast episode transcripts, a link to the Pseudo Dragon newsletter, and more. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.